Hello, donkeys. <laughs> uh, welcome, everyone. My name is Luke Thomas. This is the Promotional More Practice live chat. So, couple of changes here, huh? Um, if you watch the... Uh, I did the Monday Morning Analyst twice this week. Once was a disaster because I tried a bunch of stuff and it didn't work. Um, and then I had to redo it and uh, had a little more success that way. Oh, I'm bleeding here between my eyes. That's perfect timing. Um, like Eddie Munster or something. Um, but if you notice, a couple things are different. Number one, I got a green screen behind me. Now, I won't always use this. I'm going to use it today because we're talking about Ireland and, of course, about the Reebok shirt. But on better news, UFC Dublin is this weekend, so that's why I'm having the green screen behind us. Plus, I don't think you guys are uh, – <laughs> the timing of this is incredible. Um, I don't think you guys are going to miss my closet doors too much, right? Taste the iron on that, boy. Um, also, you can see – the camera quality is a little bit better. Now, the audio should not be too much better. That was the big problem last time. But you can see we're slowly getting there. We've got lights, camera, green screen, and I'll, this will not be a repeat. This is just a one-time thing. And then similar audio. Audio has not quite caught up yet, but we're getting there. So thank you so much for joining me. I appreciate it. Um, this is the Promotional Practice Live Chat. As I mentioned, lots of stuff. UFC Dublin, the Reebok shirt that they just pulled. Um, Bellator is on Friday. There was a, a report about UFC financials. Lots of good stuff to get to. And, of course, all of your questions on comments, which we get to on MMAfighting.com. Isn't that amazing? Just one calamity after the other when I do this chat. So totally, totally amazing. Uh, best place to do that, of course, on, on MMAfighting.com. Comments that turn green get priority <coughs> um you can get at me on twitter at sbn luke thomas you can email me at luke.thomas at sbnation.com and uh let's see don't forget to share this now anywhere you go share it on twitter share it on facebook share it on wherever you can far and wide uh let folks know about it give me some feedback too if there's any tech issues that i can resolve it should be good we should be fine fingers crossed all right. Now, with that out of the way, let's start this chat off if we can. All right. Oh, and by the way, while we're waiting for the page to reload, make sure I got all the updated recs and whatnot. Uh, again, not an official sponsor, but it might as well be. Mm, diet Dr. Pepper. Almost like Dr. Pepper if left in a hot car for a week. Now I got blood on my neck. <laughs> it's amazing. Mm, that hot car Dr. Pepper. Nothing quite so satisfying as that, baby. All right. First question, green question, green screen, talking about Ireland today, perfect timing, I feel like. All right, UFC Fight Night, Poirier versus Duffy. What grade do you give the main card on paper? Almost all of my interest went away after the Stipe Miocic versus Ben Rothwell fight was canceled. And so to um, backtrack and make sure you know what's on the main card, Poirier versus Duffy, uh, Houlihan versus Smolka, 
Park versus Madati, and Dolby versus Till. So if you had previously had Miocic and Rothwell on there, it would be a lot better because it's a really important heavyweight fight. Um, I give it, you know, it's a fight pass card. The main event is tremendous. Um, my second favorite fight on that main card is going to be Dolby versus Till. Really like that fight. Then I would go Hulahan, Smolka, and then Park versus Park versus Mudadi. I could really do without, to be honest. And then the, the prelim card is not very good. So as a card, generally, not going to give it very high remarks. Main card, understanding that you're partly dealing with a pretty serious injury replacement in terms of who gets moved up. I believe the Hulahan Smolka fight got moved up as a replacement. You know, I'm going to give it a B minus, C plus, but I'm going to give that main event. I mean, we'll see how the fight goes. I have a hard time seeing how that main event is going to suck, man. I really do. Um, Poirier is, you know, I think rejuvenated might be a strong word, but just better suited for lightweight Duffy. We've seen it's a big, important fight for Duffy, especially for his future. For some reason, you know, um, the comparisons to Conor McGregor seem to be inevitable. I think partly given his, the, that they're both Irish and, um, that they have a previous history with one another. And obviously Poirier does as well. So there's this weird thing, even though McGregor's at 145. So, uh, we'll see. But to me, that main event sort of makes the whole event, if I'm being honest. I'm, I'm really, really curious about this, right? Is this the coming out party for Joseph Duffy? He has had an amazing run in the Octagon so far, but hasn't faced anyone nearly the caliber of Dustin Poirier. Um, Poirier is a, if nothing else, a very, very credentialed competitor, um, highly skilled, and competing at, a better <clears throat> competing at a better weight class for himself. In some ways, I feel like no matter what Duffy does, he's trying to compete against a standard that he can't meet because I won't say that the win by McGregor, McGregor was fluky, but if they fought again, I would expect it to go longer. If they fought at 50, 155, I would expect it to go longer. I do think that people really sleep on McGregor's power you know, and the volume he's able to get at angles, and so I think that really trips some people up. Um, so I would pick McGregor to win. Uh, a second time, but um, I'm just trying to point out, I don't expect this fight to look like the one McGregor had, even in a best-case scenario for Duffy, which isn't to say that Duffy isn't as good or better than McGregor. Maybe he is, maybe he's not. Just want to be really careful, I guess, in the end about what the McGregor-Poirier fight means relative to any outcome in the Poirier-Duffy fight. And by the way, a lot of people are picking Poirier to win outright. You know, so uh, very important, huge, fun fight. Really like that fight. Really excited about it. You guys know me. I don't get excited about too many fights these days. Very excited about that. So card generally, it's whatever, but it's a fight pass card. It's on the main card starts at four, which means the main event will probably end sometime around six um, or so in the afternoon East Coast time. So have your rest of your evening to go out. It's kind of nice. All right. Make sure there's no tech issues. My boss says no. How are you guys doing? Let's see. No one's complaining about it. All right, let's see. Well, no one's saying the quality looks all that great. Could be the internet speeds here. But baby steps. Baby steps. All right. Um, all right. TJ Dillashaw hatred Luke, two weeks have passed since TJ's decision to leave team alpha male 
for team elevation. He has become perhaps one of the most despised figures currently in the sport. I think that's a strong word for it, but certainly this is not the peak of his popularity. How about that? His Instagram is littered with horrible insults such as traitor, scumbag, and most commonly snake in the grass. The comment sections of online MMA articles have also been critically hostile towards Dillashaw. Um, This is a disturbingly high amount of negativity and disrespect directed towards an otherwise well-mannered individual who only wants to better position himself strategically and financially. I can't recall a fighter, let alone a champion, garnering this much fan backlash backlash since John Jones refused John Jones refused to fight Chael Sonnen at UFC 151. Well, that was way worse than what TJ's getting. I mean, he got I mean, you had Dana White on a conference call saying Greg Jackson was a sport killer. It's way, way worse. This might sound odd, but can fans sometimes be one of the worst components of MMA due to their irrational and often hateful views towards the fighters that entertain them? This is one thing I talked about. If you guys remember, I did the um, the Nick Diaz video and uh, when he we were trying to wrap up the five-year suspension and what it meant. And one of my basic conclusions was that we live currently in an era where fighters are basically abused. I mean, maybe that's a strong word, but they have... They have to overcome a lot of institutional disadvantages and then just be the recipient of all kinds of negativity. Now, it's interesting, like if you get someone who is, <coughs> let's say, President Obama, right, no matter your views about him, um, you can imagine that people tweet nasty things to him or Donald Trump, right? It, they're so elevated that I doubt that they're really looking over the minutia of their Twitter feed, but I think people who are like mid-level or low-level celebrity, which a lot of fighters are, um, they're still really engaged in the online community that they have surrounded themselves with. So they have to deal with a fair amount of abuse, particularly when other fighters who are more popular than them have defined the context of their business decisions. In this case, Conor McGregor, right? So his assessment of things, even though I disagree with him pretty, pretty, pretty clearly, have had a profound impact on the way in which TJ's decision has been viewed. Um, but, you know, we live currently in an era where they have they have disadvantages relative to the sponsor issue, relative to dealing with promoters, relative to dealing with commissions, and then even online are the recipients a lot of abuse. Now, I'm sure that works both ways. They're the recipients of a lot of praise, of a lot of reaching out, of a lot of really nice and sweet people, but it just has a tremendous impact. I mean, to me, it just sort of tells me, like, if you're actually calling him a snake in the grass you're just a mindless automaton who is repeating things that they hear on television. I mean, that's sort of the lowest level of thought. Now, now Conor McGregor, that was what he said, and I disagree with him. But if you're aping him, right, if you're out there aping what he's saying by literally repeating the words, that's the lowest level of thought imaginable. Um, and these are people that deserve to just be blocked. And, and this is one of the reasons why social media has a lot of upside got a fair bit of downside too, right? Um, calling him a traitor is preposterous. Calling him a snake in the grass is preposterous. Calling him some sort of Benedict Arnold is preposterous. I will say though, that there's one thing that this lesson has taught me and maybe him. I don't think he, I don't think Dillashaw handled his departure all that well. It, he wasn't as uh, forthcoming and clear about what he wanted and what he was looking for. I think that hurt him a little bit. Although in the end, it seemed like maybe that wouldn't matter. But still, like you owe it to everyone around you, whether they like it or not, to make the appropriate, um, you know, you should make decisions up front clearly 
stated in the most adult and and um, purposeful of ways. I think he was a little bit beating around the bush because I'm not sure he knew how to handle it. Um, and I think this lesson has always this has been a wake up lesson too that like, of course, fans will have your back. They will support you. They will do lots of good things. But like, you know, um, your business decisions need to be made. You just got to make them on your own, and and you can't. I think he was trying to like preserve situations. Like, I still want to be friends with these guys. I still want to be able to train there. I still want everything I had. When the business decision you had, you weren't trying to undercut that, but you should have anticipated that they might. And if you had anticipated that in a in a calm, rational way that when they took that away from him, he would have been, you know, understandably disappointed, I, I suppose, but a lot a lot clearer about um, how to handle it, right? A lot, it's a lot easier to handle when you say, okay, this is one thing I need to be prepared for emotionally. Then it happens. You say, okay, I'm not happy about it, but I understand that I was prepared for this. It was part of my calculation and making my decision. I can then move forward with it. And I think he was trying to make a decision like having his cake and eating it too and um, again, some situations maybe that he could have left and Team Alpha Male wouldn't have those issues, but they did. I think in part they had them by the way in which he handled it. So um, a bit of a lesson for a young guy like that, you know, not super young, but young enough where this is the first time he's ever really done anything like this and had to make a deep, difficult decision. So that, that to me is my takeaway was he was just naive was a strong word. I wouldn't use that, but unprepared for some of the eventualities that eventually happened. Uh, hey, Luke, since Brendan Chobb seems to be making unlimited money with his podcast shirts, I don't think he's making unlimited money, but probably making, you know, I don't know, a little bit. Someone says, how about some promotional malpractice shirts? I don't know. When I was over there at Bloody Elbow and I uh, was editor-in-chief over there, everyone was kind of haranguing me for T-shirts, and I never did it. As soon as I left, they began to make them. Some of them I think are pretty cool. Um I don't know. I, I just, I mean, maybe, maybe I, I don't, I, for some reason I have an apprehension about it and I don't know why, but I don't know. Maybe. Someone says I would buy two. Someone says just put donk on the front and then professional malpractice logo on the back. Yeah, I'm not doing that for sure. All right. War machine versus mayhem Miller. Okay, uh, Luke, in your opinion, which of these two is more deranged? Is that a serious question? I think Jason Miller is troubled. You know, War Machine appears to be deranged. Did Rico Verhoeven potentially dominate the UFC heavyweight division? I asked this a lot in the last chat, but you didn't get to it on time. Given that Verhoeven is young and at the top of his game in kickboxing, could he be a force in the UFC's heavyweight division if he focuses on MMA? His debut was quite impressive, even though he got tagged a little at the start. You know what's funny about that? I didn't see the same issues that everyone else did, good and bad. So first of all, overall, it was a great debut. Put it that way, right? Overall, what kind of grade would you give it? B plus, A minus, pretty, pretty good, yeah, um, for a pro debut. You know, we're not saying he's out there beating the best guys in the world or even very good guys. He's actually beating kind of bad guys. But that's where you should start with your pro debut. You shouldn't start with anybody really good. You're just getting your feet under you. And, of course, he has a lot of competition experience in kickboxing. But in MMA, you got to start 
very, very, you know, you got to build a guy. And sometimes that means you got to just, you know, give them easy fights to start things off with because um, you never know how they're going to react. A couple things I saw that I really liked from Rico. Number one, when he tried to go for a trip from a body lock, he tried one way and the guy didn't fall. So he went back to the other way. Now, I don't know if that was intentional. If it was, that was a great setup. And even if it was intentional, it was great follow through. So either way, great job by Rico Verhoeven not getting the trip, following through, switching sides, and then going to the other one. That's that's just good thinking and or good practice, depending on um, what he was trying to do there. So I really liked that from him. That, that was great. Um, once he got on top, the guy on bottom had just, you know, like no half guard whatsoever. Nothing. So, you know, I mean, like, go back and watch how Rico passes to mount. He doesn't control hips. He doesn't control head. He just pushes hand and steps over. Okay. That's not Rico's fault. Like Rico almost gets docked for it in a way in some people's mind because the guy who he had to pass against did nothing to stop him. Right. So, so that, that to me was kind of problematic, right? Like he, he, um, he, he did what he, he didn't need to do any pressure passing. He just had to step over. So that doesn't tell us much about Rico. It tells us a lot about the other guy. Not saying Rico can't pressure pass to get to mount, to mount. He just didn't have to this time. But passes to mount. Another thing I liked, he had a nice high mount, right? He wasn't low near the hips. When you're near the hips, if your hips are on top of theirs and they buck, that's when you go flying. If you're up top near their shoulders and they move their hips, there's not a lot they can do, right? Because you're not attached to them. So I like that. Um, you know, if you wanted to, you could have sat for an arm bar, but why do that? Sat him out, pounded, pounded him out. Didn't go crazy with the flurry, kind of picked his shots a little bit. There was a lot to like there. Now, now some people were pointing out saying, well, Rico, you know, he got hit a couple times and, and turtled up and kind of circled out. He does that in kickboxing too, I mean, to a lesser extent. But I thought he took a couple shots, realized he didn't like that, put up a defensive shell, circled out, and then reengaged the guy immediately. You know, I didn't see a lot of troubling things about that. I mean, yeah, I'm sure getting punched didn't feel good. The little gloves can be tricky for some of these kickboxers who are used to the giant shields they can put up. He didn't have that. Okay, fine, fair enough. But I don't know. I saw a lot to like. I saw a lot to like there. The issue about your question is could he dominate the UFC heavyweight division? We have no idea. Like, I don't even think the question is relevant, to be perfectly honest. I'm not bashing you for, for wondering it. But you've got to take a step back. This is his pro debut. And he had a couple nice takedowns. But he had takedowns on a guy who, you know, so what? Like, so what? Like, you, you need, we need to see. Look, we know he can strike. We know he's probably got a pretty good clinch, too. We know he's big. We know he's strong. We know he's athletic. And one thing that I think always comes across to me whenever I've spoken to him in person is, you know, competitively, he's got a really big chip on his shoulder, which is something you, I think, need a lot in mixed martial arts. Um you know, kickboxing is a rematch sport. You get a lot of chances to go back and fight a guy a second or a third time. And I'm not saying those guys don't have chips on their shoulders, but I just mean you got to be you got to be real nasty in MMA to finish guys off and to take advantage of opportunities because they just don't come around the same kind of way in terms of there's more money to be had in MMA. But like I said, kickboxing can be a be a rematch sport. But we don't know anything really about his ground. I mean, not because he didn't try to show us but because the guy who he went against was n not the kind of guy who, when you beat him on the ground, that tells you a lot. Um, for me, I still need to see a lot about his passing. I need to see about his takedown defense. I need to see about his 
the rest of his takedowns? Can he shoot a double? Can he pressure a guy against the fence? And really, if you think about Rico, what's everyone going to want to do with him? They're going to want to take him down. You know, Overeem's got pretty decent takedown defense. He's got some decent takedowns himself. We kind of know this, right? We don't know that about Rico. So to me, that's that's the issue there. And, and again, that's okay that we don't know that yet. This is a building process. He will get there slowly. That's all I'm saying is the questions about can he be a heavyweight champ? Can he dominate a division? Let's ask that in a year or two. Like we're not even we're not even at a point where that's a relevant question. Uh, let's see. Someone says, um, Ultimate Fight Night Sao Paulo is in roughly two weeks. For an FS1 card, it's pretty underrated. What do you think? You pull up the card, it's Belfort versus Henderson. How is Belfort still fighting? <laughs> Unbelievable. Uh, Teixeira versus Cummins. Uh, Thomas Almeida versus Anthony Burchak. Um, the other, Oliveira versus uh, Piotr Holman, Dorino Burns versus Rashid Magomedov, and then Maldonado versus now Cordy Anderson. Uh, the Oliveira, I forget his first name, it's the one that Burns beat by armbar. Um, yeah, it's a decent card. And then you got Jan Cabral versus Case on the prelims. Tibal versus Trujillo, that's pretty good. Guido versus Tavares, that's a tough fight, man. And then um, Sousa versus Skelly. Yeah, it's a decent card. Who's on the prelims? Right, Pedro Munoz on the prelims. Yeah, I don't care about the rest of it. Yeah, it's pretty good. For a fight night card, it's not bad. But, you know, that. I mean, how are you going to have Vitor Belfort fight and, like, no one's answering for it? Y'all, If y'all got out of Sao Paulo, you better start asking them some real questions, man. So it says less cards in 2016. With it being reported on Bloody Elbow, the UFC is looking to cut 50 fighters. Is it possible we'll see them pull back their work schedule in 2016? Not by a dramatic amount, but probably a little bit, yeah. Like if they're cutting a bunch of guys, um, they're they're looking to either make fewer fights per card, which I'm not overly convinced that they want to, at least not in a dramatic way. But they're trying to do a, f- a few uh, few less cards. Now, if you look this year, Patrick Wyman previously reported, I'm not sure if that's the case with that December 10th now being added, but they had done three or four less cards this year. And you say, well, is that really a lot? I mean, it is and it isn't, right? Um, it is in a very important sense, though, because the main events for all those cards, and sometimes the main, sometimes even a third fight in those cards, would be taking up some version of top 10 talent. And so that can all be siphoned off to better cards here stateside or, or whatever the case may be. It can just be bigger pay-per-view cards, right? So uh, even though they may take place in other parts of the country or the world. So there's that. But to me, it's like, if you look at who they cut, they're not cutting, you know, the best guys that they have. They're cutting guys who are struggling to be there. Look, I am not saying I'm happy about anybody losing out on their dreams. I am not saying I'm happy about guys you know, not having the opportunity to fight in the octagon anymore. I think Matt Van Buren had tweeted that he had wanted to take a fight, was looking at one, was offered one, turned it down because it was against a teammate, and then he was cut. You know, I, feel, I, I don't, you know, this sucks. You know, I'm not, I'm not happy about that. But ultimately, you know, the UFC is going to do whatever they want. But ultimately, the vision I've been sort of arguing for 
the one that I think best suits the UFC, and they can reject this opinion, and to a large extent they have, is it's got to be a little bit more about premium talent. And if you're going to showcase more premium talent, there's a limit currently globally which you can make that happen and still preserve some kind of product integrity. And for a while there in 2002, excuse me, 2012 and 2013, and, and, and 14 too, like they were running so many shows and trying to do so many things internationally, which is, which is interestingly ambitious, but it had a real effect on the card quality. This Irish card, you know, the main, the, 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 the prelim card is, is not good. I mean, I'm kind of overlooking it because I like the main event so much, but there's a lot of guys there who are there because they're top European prospects and they need them to fill a card because they want to have a presence in those market, not because they're up to some kind of elite standard. They're just, they're just not, you know, and that's okay. Like most people are not, you know, you can have more than the top 10 in each weight class, but there's only 10. If you pick the top 10 guys in any weight class. Let's, let's throw in the champion there. There's only 10 of them, right? You can have 15 or 20, but the point being is that's where the elite talent lies. It's in guys who are either at the top or pretty close to it. You know, you got more fighters in the UFC than you have players in the NBA and the NBA is basketball is a pretty global sport too. Last time I checked. So, um, just keep that in mind. It's like, I'm not happy about these guys being gone. I, I don't like, I don't wish it upon them in some kind of direct way, but I do think like the roster needs trimming. It, the, the product needs a little bit of editing and they're putting all this effort into, and it shows they're putting all this effort into, you know, the graphics packages. And I don't like the fight kits, but I can see that it's part of a larger effort of presentation and, and and you know, moving towards the mainstream, they've got this. They've got this figure now in Ronda Rousey. Like if they're ever going to penetrate the mainstream to any kind of real lasting extent, it's going to be on the back of her. So you got to strike while the iron is hot. Like I get it. I mean, I don't. I don't agree with a lot of how it was done, but I understand. At least I. I I'm in part sympathetic to the larger push, right? Um, and in some ways they're connected. In some ways they're not. But. The, the product has to be maintained. It has to be. The guys who are fighting on the prelims, they don't have to be world beaters. You have room for a lot of guys who can come, a lot of guys who can go. But, you know, if they're not getting it done pretty quickly and you can tell that they're just not ready for this level or maybe they'll never be, you got to let them go. You got to let them go. Just preserving a lot of guys and giving them false chances, I don't feel like is the best way to go about things. And you could say, well, now this guy has a record of two and two in UFC. Why did he get cut? Two and two in the UFC, I mean, what does that mean exactly? I want to see who they fought and how they fought. You know, two and two against what? On pay-per-view main cards? That might be a little more. That might tell me a little bit more. In Fox Sports 1 main events, that might tell me a little bit more. But, you know, if you fought on a bunch of fight pass or prelim cards or even main cards and uh, that was a late replacement kind of situation, you know, I'm not sure what all that means. So to me, again, like, am I happy that, you know, Eddie Truck Gordon got cut? No. But do I generally think it's the right idea for a premium business to trend towards having and preserving a more premium product? I absolutely do. I absolutely think it's the right call. UFC Dublin. How do you see the Poirier versus Duffy fight going? Man, I really don't know. Part of the reason why I like it is the same reason why you like it. Um, I think that they're well-matched. I think that um, obviously Poirier has the experience edge. I, I really feel like, do you remember when Poirier fought uh, Cub Swanson and it was back and forth and it was crazy? I kind of feel it's going to be a little bit of that. Um, I mean, we're just going to see Duffy tested in a way he's never been tested before. And how he's going to answer that, I don't know. I tend to think he has 
a lot more creativity as a striker than he's given credit. I don't see him as a brawler, which I think will preserve him down the stretch. We're going to see how the grappling goes. I think Farrier might have an edge. We'll see. I don't know. Um, not that I think that Duffy is a bad grappler, but I think that Poirier is a very underrated good grappler. Um, you know, we'll see. We'll see. I, I, my, my, my hunch is that Duffy is going to show us something special, but I really don't know. If I, I really, truly think that there's an easy – Jesus Christ. I really, truly think there's an easy case to make for Poirier here if, you, if you're a believer in him. I wouldn't count him out at all, man. Like, this, is, this could easily be a fight where he shows you the ferocity that you expected – against Conor McGregor. You just didn't get it out that time. You may get it this time. Um, I just kind of feel like somewhere Duffy is going to show you something real sneaky. It's going to catch him and he's going to put him away. But, you know, this there's not a tremendous amount of, like, um, there's some evidence you can point to to that effect, but not a whole lot. I just feel like Duffy makes great decisions a lot. You know, he gets he gets caught a little bit here or there, which everyone kind of does. But one thing for me about Duffy is he just makes a lot of good decisions, a lot of crafty decisions, a lot of trap setting, a lot of misdirection, a lot of getting you accustomed to stuff and then then lighting you up with something else. I, I really feel like he's good at that. A lot of guys try to launch offense against him because he may overcommit to something and then he counters with you. Like he's he's good at setting traps. He's good at counters. You know, we'll see how good he is against positional wrestling that Poirier might be able to give him a little bit of, you know, um, and Poirier not falling for a lot of easy mistakes that others might. So it's a tough fight, man. It's a tough fight. I like Duffy to pull it out late, uh, which is why I'm, I'm a little bit hesitant to make some of the, oh, well, McGregor put him away early. Again, not saying he wouldn't do it again, but if they fought 10 times, I wouldn't expect it to look all the 10 times like that. But, uh, yeah, I think, I mean, I just, I don't know. My hunch is that Duffy is a real tremendous talent. And needs a fight like this to show it, but also needs a fight like this to build him um, in terms of getting the requisite experience, figuring out what works against elite opposition, figuring out what doesn't, just becoming a different fighter after the fact. All right. Someone saying to you, what do you think of the UFC's decision to cut a number of fighters this past week? Do you think they have changed their globalization strategy and hence want to scale back in the number of events they hold per year? We'll see about that. I know you just answered that, but uh, just go back and find the article Patrick Wyman wrote for Bleacher Report where he talks about how much has been scaled back. And when you really measure how much has been scaled back, you know, it may have been only four or so shows, but that is that's more than you think. That's a lot, you know. They're still doing a lot. I, I just feel like this idea of of trying to be everywhere all the time. It's just not sustainable. It's just not sustainable. So like pick your areas where you really want to focus, you know, try to be as global as you can be with recognizing that it's just better to have a couple hot spots that you can own um, and then slowly expand reach. But like just, just, you know, maneuvering out into the world and trying to be in China when China is so not even close to ready. Mexico needs a lot of work. Mexico is not the next Brazil, man, not even close. So it just takes time, man. Like it just, you can be ready to have your, you can be, we can fly our team down there. We can put an office in a city. We can host shows. We got a, we got, we have local fighters. We can put on the car. We can reasonably sell. Maybe we have one who can like totally sell and one or two that, that doesn't mean it's ready. Like it has to be, every part of the chain has to be ready. 
You know, you have to have the right distribution deal. You have to have lasting deep talent. You have to have the indigenous shows. You have to have um, world-class gyms that, that are ready to constantly produce talent. You have to have medium-class gyms. You have to have low-class gyms. You have to have this entire ecosystem has to be in place to have for the UFC to really take advantage of it. It's easy for a small-time player who has small-time needs to take advantage of it. When you're a big-time player and you're the biggest player, you need you have big-time needs, and you have to have big-time partners. If you don't have all those pieces in there, it's hard to make it work. Fighter. Look, I would love to know your opinion on tip of fighter, and why do you think most managers are not allowing their fighters to join it? Well, I haven't heard about their managers not allowing fighters to join it. I don't know what that's about. But I can say, look, I think as you're good people trying to do a good thing, right, trying to find a way around the, the pay problem, but the pay problem is solved by collective bargaining. It's not solved by anything else. Nothing else will solve it. There is no other way around it. You know, setting up a large, you know, like Indiegogo, a large Kickstarter for every fighter out there, it's just not how it works. Um, you got to compel people through, through force. It's just how it goes to get paid. Slow news week. So I was wondering for fun, who would you favor in these three hypothetical fights? 2005 Chuck Liddell versus 2015 Anthony Johnson. That's a fun one because Chuck had an iron chin back then. Um, man, it's a good one. Maybe Liddell? Maybe Liddell. I don't know. Uh, 2003 Randy Couture versus 2015 Ryan Bader. Ryan Bader. Um, UFC 100 George St. Pierre versus 2000 Sakuraba. Are you kidding? St. Pierre would run over that fool. All right, Sage Northcutt. With all the hype around him, and with Faraz Zahabi saying he thinks he is the best 19-year-old in the world, how come Bellator and other big promotions missed the beat on him? And who should they be more looking closely on signing? Wait, how they missed the beat on him, and should they be looking more closely on signing these younger talents? Look, they can't be everywhere at all times. They have a minimal scouting crew. It used to be Zach Light and Sam Kaplan and uh, a few other guys. I'm not even sure who's doing it now. I mean, Rich Chow's the matchmaker, but is he also doing a lot of scouting on his off weeks? I don't really know. Um, you know, I think to a, some extent. Pico was kind of brought to them. Uh, I'm not exactly sure about the circumstances behind Ed Ruth, but maybe he was as well. These were guys that were directed to, at them. Uh, I'm sure that I'm sure that Bellator has some kind of scouting apparatus. It's not clear to me what it is. I'll look into that actually because that's an important thing to note. But you know, UFC has a pretty tremendous one that they that they have. Um, you know, just a little does a lot of scouting actually, uh, and so does Sean Shelby, and, and I think others as well for them in, in, in different capacities. Um, Look, it's hard to find everyone. You know, I mean, there's a lot of guys that the UFC finds that never work. There's a lot of guys that Bellator finds that never work. It's just it's a lot of its luck, a lot of its timing, a lot of it's who you know, a lot of it's how you get to know them. It's a lot, man. It's really a lot. All right, let's see what else is going on here. All 
Again, well, someone, someone says, will you ever have promotional malpractice shirts made for us to purchase and support the show? I doubt it, but maybe. Someone says, the picture looks HD to me and sounds fine. It's better. I, I'm shooting out of a camera that shoots in 4K. Would GSP versus Anderson be a better bet for UFC 200 rather than George coming back to get the belt? No. Like the, the problems of that fight are only magnified by St. Pierre's absence, even with Silva's pretty clear aging. The weight issue is still problematic. Right? And again, like everyone gets all mad. How could you say George St. Pierre can't fight? I think of the, the peak St. Pierre is probably the best welterweight we've ever seen. Right? I think, I think, I think no, no one at welterweight has ever looked better. Maybe. Lawler's takedown defense today is better, but that's even debatable. Like the 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 2009 2010 era George St. Pierre, whatever, that was the best welterweight ever, 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 ever. That guy was tremendous. But one ACL tear and then a second, I think, has really slowed him down, made him a lot less explosive, made his takedowns a lot less uh, effective. Um, the growing nature of the takedown defense game generally has caught up with him a little bit. Um, and after two years, I don't think he's going to be looking for an easy fight by any stretch of the imagination if he decides to come back. But um, whatever was holding up that fight to begin with, the GSP versus Silva, none of that goes away. And in fact, the time off only makes it worse, I feel like. But who knows? They might you know, watch me jinx it and I'll reverse jinx it and then it comes to life. Someone says no jersey today. I know, my, my Real Madrid jersey. But I've worn it like twice now and people get all bitter. So, If Duffy drops Poirier impressively in the first round and McGregor finishes Aldo, who goes in as a favorite in Croke Park? I mean, if they fought each other at 155, uh, I would go with Duffy if, if that happened. But... Probably McGregor. Ben Rothwell has called out Andre Arlovsky for UFC 195's co-main event. Does this make sense, and who wins? Uh, I wouldn't mind it at all. Their first fight in Affliction was great. Had an awesome finish. Uh, a thrilling build-up to the finish. Um, it was, at least early on, reasonably competitive. These are different guys now. Love it. Do it again. No problem. No problem, but if not grudge match exactly, but you know, they got history together. Sure, do it. Ha happy to take it. All right, so uh, someone says, Luke, what is the latest trendy liberal hipster band you've seen at 930 Club? Like, like you would think I listen to that kind of music only disturbs me more. There's nothing I hate worse than these like beta males weeping into microphones um, about, you know, the the like they're they, uh, hold on hold on I'm look up something like they're Schopenhauer crying about life and their vegan sandwiches and I like vegan people I eat vegan food all the time but man you know DC is full of these kinds of donks it's just you know ne never done a deadlift in their life they listen to uh, music that only reinforces um. You know, how much they hate masculinity. <laughs> and I know this sounds deeply ignorant and 
maybe lessens your opinion of me, but I'm sorry. There's just something existentially about that kind of guy that bothers me. You know, I prefer, I prefer, I don't know. I've always preferred a vision of, of manhood that, uh, had a little bit of anger and edge to it, but a manhood award, I suppose. Yeah. But of masculinity that had a little bit of anger to it. If your version of masculinity doesn't have anger to it. I don't know what, I don't know who you are and not like rage or, um, you know, assault or something like that. But yeah, that's sort of my opinion. If you don't have that, I don't think we can be friends. All right. UFC revenue distribution. I thought, by the way, the last band, by the way, that I saw at 930 Club was um, either Jose Gonzalez or um, Run the Jewels. No, Run the Jewels was the last one I saw. All right. I thought the revenue analysis by John Nash, which you linked, was quite revealing, especially after Lorenzo Fertitta, I think, consistently pushed the about 50% of the revenue goes to the fighters. Do you see the revenue analysis having an impact on the UFC and fighter negotiations? Is the revenue split something you see can even change without the fighters unionizing? No. There's no association or union. That split won't change. I mean, it won't change much anyway. Um, it might change some. There might be some public pressure. But, like, the point of those articles is, one, we're trying to make an educated guess. If you look at the article... Some of what he does is extrapolation. Some of what he does is a little bit of guesswork about working backwards with math. Some of what he does, he actually has real pieces of information that heretofore we did not have. So some of it's guesswork. Some of it is not. Um, but there's some pretty concrete evidence that suggests from 2005 to 2011 that the fighters got less than 14% of revenue. Um, you can make a case, I think, a little bit that it should be lower than established leagues like the NFL. Um, and you can make a case that um, maybe fighters deserve more now, but it was understandable that they didn't get some of that early on. You know, we're trying to build something. If you create too many obstacles in the way, then you hinder the ultimate growth. Okay, fine. But I think the issue was that, to get to your point, that in that ESPN interview when Josh Gross and John Barr from outside the lines from ESPN had asked about fighter revenue, that it was said, you know, in the neighborhood, the ballpark-ish of, um, being 50%, you know, not quite, I don't think he said it was, but you know, it wasn't too far away. Um, the best available math that we have. And again, we don't know to what extent it's entirely true, but there's at least some information. Some of it is factual. Some of it is, um, guesswork, but it was more factual than we've ever had before suggesting that it's much closer to about 14%. You know, if that's the case then there's a discrepancy there, um, what you want to do about the discrepancies up to you, but like how we get that 14 to let's say 40 does not happen without collective bargaining. I just don't, I don't see how it does. Um, look at how this story has been promoted. It has been a big success on bloody elbow. I'm talking about it here on this chat has been disseminated in the MMA world has gone on a few forums, but has ESPN talked about it once. Is it a big story out there like Lamar Odom? It's not. Like the blessing and the curse of MMA is that some of the stories you really want to get out there, they just never really reach that next level. And some of the stories that you're afraid might get to the next level just never do. We, 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 some stories we have graduate. 
and some don't. And you may say, well, how can the Ronda versus Travis Brown, our dating story, graduate to the next level? Well, you got the biggest celebrity that MMA has ever seen, a woman, um, talking about her dating life. That, to me, is not in any way um, surprising that that managed to move up to the level of, you know, gossip that sites want to trade in on. But that, that that's the problem. So, like, is there any impact? I don't know. If this story somehow explodes in the next, you know, week or two, I don't know. But the point of those stories is to inform the Native community and because virtue is its own reward, which is to say, like, part of the reason, I, and I haven't even spoken to John about this, but I'm guessing that part of the reason why he wrote that article is because he was just himself genuinely curious about it. Half the articles I write are that. Hey, what is the situation with this? And then you go and look it up. You know what? I've had this question. Or maybe I've got this theory and I want to test it. Let me talk to this person to see if this is right or if it's wrong or what the actual truth is. And, and maybe, the, maybe they'll shed some insight. That's, that's a lot of what this ends up being. Right? So that's probably what that comes from. Is like he was genuinely curious. What is it? And he wanted to find as much publicly available information as he could and talk to a, a range of experts, including... Uh, a professor, including a, I think a CPA um, and other figures as well who have some mathematical knowledge, some economic knowledge, some financial knowledge and knowledge of the industry generally who can then put together a composite sketch of what it might look like. I think that's the best way to think of it, right? If someone gets robbed and they, the cops ask him, what does this person look like? And they're kind of telling him this and you get this composite sketch that you put on the you put on the TV, part of it's going to be how well the person relays what they saw. Part of it is going to be how well the artist is able to render that. But sometimes you can get a really great composite sketch of what the person ultimately looks like. I think that's sort of what we've got here. We've got a glimpse of something. We don't have a photographic shot of them, but we've got a pretty good shot of them. We're retelling it. We're recreating it. And this is what it looks like. So I'm sure some things aren't quite correct, but there are, there are a couple of key pieces of information there. I think particularly about the 2012 revenue that they earned being of like 400 plus million, that was a fact. It was stated as fact, you know, so we know certain signposts that are really key to understanding their overall financial picture in terms of revenue and revenue growth. Um, we have some of that now that we didn't have before. And that's because of his grunt work. So um, still lots more to go. I don't think it changes the game, but it, it just helps us have more information. It's important to write. Um, it informs the community generally, and I think it pushes, it, it, it does create some pressure to then seek even more information after that. Once you create a new threshold, no one just stops in the news business. Everyone is trying to get more information on top of that. And so it, 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 that pushes the ball in that direction. This is a bizarre question. Hypothetically speaking, Luke, is it wrong of me to wish World Series of Fighting didn't exist anymore? They have some good fighters, don't get me wrong, but their cards are so thin that it makes it sometimes painful to sit through all the no-name matchups just to get to the main event. I can't help but fantasize about a perfect world where Scott Cooker's contract with the UFC ended a few years ago and he went to Bellator sooner because it meant, let's be honest, the only reason most guys that went to World Series of Fighting over Bellator is because of Bjorn and the way he was running things at the time. If all their top talent was in Bellator, it would make things much more exciting on Friday nights. What are your thoughts? Okay. It's 
goes for any organization. You don't, you don't have an obligation to like anyone or anything. If you don't like World Series of Fighting, don't watch or DVR or whatever. Do whatever you want. If you do like them and you want to send a message to advertisers or fighters or whatever else, or you just want to send your support to the organization, you should watch. You should watch. But this idea of, like, I want it to live or die, I mean, of course you're entitled to hold that opinion. And I'm not really going to weigh in on it because I can't really, like, if you think that would be better, I mean, there's a debate to be had about that, of course. I'm not sure I totally agree, but um, I, I don't have a tremendous problem with people not having this like deep allegiance to organization although it sounds like what you're doing is i don't have this allegiance to world series of fighting i have this other allegiances to these organizations at least as brand leaders brand bearers and this dual setup where it's one versus two or one a versus two b kind of kind of setup you know but look you don't have an obligation to like things you don't like you you don't have an obligation even to promote things you do although i would i would kind of encourage you to do that but I guess this fealty that you see among MMA fans about, like, I like this organization over that organization, then do something about it. Send a consumer message. Um, but I don't ever try to think about MMA fandom personally in terms of organizational allegiance. I try to think about it in terms of, you know, if you, fights I want to see. And you're saying, well, the fights I want to see will be bettered by that. Well, okay, I guess I can understand that a little bit. But I just feel like it's a little bizarre to be a fan of a promoter. Um, and the truth about MMA promoters is I understand it to some extent because MMA people are like, well, people aren't fans of top rank in boxing. Okay, that's true. Top rank doesn't do what UFC does. UFC is much more of an entertainment creator and curator than any boxing promoter because they do all the same number of live events plus a lot more stuff. Right, they've built much more of an identity and much more of a brand, and much more. Um, they just they just do a lot more for the consumer than these other boxing promoters. So some level of like, I kind of prefer their product attitude. I get. Just always be kind of mindful of it though about what that all means in the end, like who you're enabling, who you're not, and what kind of future this creates. I always kind of feel like it's better to err on the side of I'm not that big a fan of promoters. I'm a bigger fan of fighters. Just for the purposes of empowering, at least in this current predicament, the people that sort of needed a lot more to create a healthier balance. But but in the end, fans are going to like what they like and they're going to dislike what they dislike. Um, the paradigm under which that happens, it's hard to police it, you know. And again, I just feel like maybe maybe less so with World Series of Fighting because they don't have as much capability. But, you know, Viacom-backed Bellator and certainly, you know, Zufa-backed UFC or just UFC generally, these are promoters that do more than the average boxing promoter. They just do a lot more. So I understand why there's a little bit of senti sentimentality around that. Oh, this is a good one. Uh, the Triple G buy rate. So Triple G fought Lemieux over the weekend uh, on HBO pay-per-view. Someone says, I think I just heard he pulled in 150K buys. Thoughts? Does this help vindicate guys like Mighty Mouse? I mean, 
I hadn't thought about it in terms of Mighty Mouse necessarily. I had thought about it like a couple different ways, right? So first of all, you know, those are early returns. It often takes a few weeks to get full returns from all the different pay-per-view providers, although maybe the numbers were so low that they feel comfortable going forward with this because there's not going to be a lot of trickle effect after the fact. And I believe HBO is airing the fight again on Saturday for free, if I'm not mistaken. So there's that. Um, I look at it as one, he doesn't have a lot of competition, so it's hard for him to, you know, build a name. Um, two, you know, would he, would he even have drawn 150 K buys before this two years ago? You know, I don't know. The guys on a lot of free fights on, uh, HBO. Um, you know, people were asking me like my general sense about triple G is that like, just based on what people ask me on the street or, you know, people who know I cover MMA or what are boxing, or whatever they say, it's this triple G guy legit. So like, it's not even like they know who he all that how great he is yet they're kind of like a, a bit of buzz is building about him right and uh they kind of have a sense about him but they don't really know anything about that division they kind of know well maybe ward is next or maybe the winner of Cotto canelo is next and maybe if it winds up being canelo versus triple g because i think canelo is going to beat Cotto in a month um that that will do something to help turn a corner but like in boxing, it's a lot of torch passing where, you know, you see the MMA too, of course, where older fighter gets beat by a younger fighter and the popularity sort of transfers over and this is how they build themselves. But like he exists in a division where there's not a lot of talent. What is What talent is there has ducked him, you know, purposely gone out of their way not to fight him. Uh, that, that, that road is coming to an end now that the winner of Cota versus Canelo is obligated to fight him because uh, of that or give it their belts basically so that that seems to be happening but to me it's less like it's less about that with with demetrius johnson you know look he just doesn't it's very different right because demetrius johnson's competing at 125 pounds uh triple g can go uh, up to 160 he can go even lower than that they were talking about potential triple g mayweather fight if you know mayweather had no interest but you could make it work on the weight you know demetrius johnson fights at a much lower weight class you know, the, it's true that the lower weight classes, um, they don't, it's a little bit harder when you get down below 140, it begins to get harder to promote some of these guys. But even then, it's not impossible, um, at least not as a television attraction. I, I often talk about Nonito Donaire, at the similar weight class, being able to at least be some kind of a television presence. I think Demetrius Johnson could do that too. But we're talking about pay-per-view. You know, Johnson is benefiting, A, from the stars around him, um, not so much from the guys he fights necessarily. So that, that that there is one commonality there that the division lacks a kind of, you know, he's not so much of a star himself, but the division, his rivals aren't either. So that's problematic. But he's got like the full faith and credit of the UFC kind of backing him a little bit. And um, to me, he, that's a big structural advantage that Triple G does not have, right? I mean, if I asked you who promoted that fight, could you even tell me? Fuck. Oh, I curse. What are you going to do? Uh I'm pretty sure it was top rank, if I'm not mistaken. But whatever the case, even then, I'm not so sure. So, like, that, that's a huge problem as well, right? So, so there you go. Like, he doesn't have that backing on it. He's kind of doing it himself. Um, and I think that there is growing curiosity about him. But in a thin division, that's a problem. In a thin division where guys are ducking you, it's even worse. So, he's in the, he's in the, he's 33, I believe. Time's running out for him to be, 
you know, both a star and an elite competitor. It's just, it's just been a tough road for him, man. Let's see here. Okay, what else we got going on in the world today? Someone's saying, I went to Buffalo Wild Wings and they refused to play the Triple G fight. I begged them and they have no problem switching to glory when it comes on on Spike. Okay, well, that's free. But no one was interested in watching Triple G fight. It was ridiculous. Yeah, people don't know who he is yet, man. Let's see here. Uh, according to Lance Pugmire, Andre Arlovsky versus Stipe Miocic will be the co-main event at UFC 195 January 2nd in Las Vegas. Poor Ben Rothwell, man. That's That hurts. That hurts. That's a great fight, though, for you and me. I guess I guess we'll see what they'll do with Ben Rothwell, you know. I think if someone is a diehard fan of MMA, they probably agree with your assessment of hipsters. Someone says, you being pro-toxic masculinity breaks my heart. <laughs> I don't know what to tell you. I am who I am, man. All right, so someone says the T-shirt. Let's get to the T-shirt. Uh, question. SBG Reebok deal. John Cavanaugh announced yesterday that SBG has an exclusive Reebok deal for the gym now. Can you give us a brief description of what you know in the deal? I don't know much about the deal, to be perfectly honest. But let's talk about the t-shirt itself because he also tweeted that if they didn't correct it, issue an apology, um, that he would that he would um, essentially end the deal. And they did. So I guess it's he's moved on since then. So people have wondered, look, you know, first of all, there was an interesting thing that people were like, well, typical ignorant Americans making a t-shirt. From what I understand, this came out of the, I mean, I need to verify this. I don't want to be, I want to be clear about it. But it was the UK Twitter account that apologized for it from Reebok. This is only sold in the UK or also in Ireland, um, the Republic of Ireland. Um, this is not available, to my knowledge, on the American version. This was on Reebok.ie. Um, so to me, it's not clear exactly that this was an American lack of geographic knowledge. It could be. It wouldn't surprise me if it was, to be perfectly honest. But let's just be clear before we start bashing America for no reason. Um, about who actually came up with this and how how it came to be. So, but it is it, it should be noted though that like, look, man, you got to know a country's history if you're going to. And I don't want to use the word prostitute it, but if you're going to, if you're going to try and monetize nationalism, that's a very dangerous thing to do in certain circumstances. It's it, as a policy, it's just very rough. So, for example. Let's talk, let's talk about Reebok's push into nationalism and the UFC's push into nationalism. I'm not against it on certain occasions. For example, Triple G makes note of, in some overtures, being from Kazakhstan. I don't know if you know that or not, but he is from Kazakhstan. Um, 
he does make cer- certain things he wears or certain things he tries to do in his personal life are to promote Kazakhstan, to promote a positive image of the place. Okay. That's what he tries to do. And I think that works for him. It's something he's elected to do with no one asking him to do it. Certainly there are, there are some nationalistic pushes in boxing to get certain crowds, you know, uh, um, um, who's the donk who fought uh, Cunningham at um, Prudential Center, the Polish kid, uh, Thomas Adamic. You know, he certainly is a proud, um, you know, native of Poland. And to what extent the promoters push that on him and he adopts it himself, you can have that debate. But, you know, there is there is a value to it from a commercial Im- impact. I understand why people do it. But nationalism is a tricky thing, man. It's a really, really tricky thing. You know, you've got the Basque in Spain. You've got, you know, the Taiwanese and how China sees them versus how they see themselves. You've got all kinds of different territorial disputes about, you know, French Canada, in my time, nearly nearly separated. Uh, Quebec nearly separated. They they didn't in the end. But, you know, can you ma- – I, mean, I don't even want to get into it. I don't even want to get into it. The National identity and cultural identity and historic identity, these things are fluid and sometimes seemingly contradictory and they're hard to push around and understand unless you really have a, a clear grasp on them. And I think the Irish reasonably feel like, number one, a lot of people just look over us because we're a small country. Um, they're, you know, you, you, if you go back and you look at Sean Sheehan, the journalist for Severe MMA, when he was on um, uh, Ariel Hawani's MMA Hour, like one of the reasons why Conor McGregor is so special to them is that they're able to celebrate themselves on, a, on an international stage. And, and you know, when, you, when you hear something like that, like Americans kind of take that for granted. Like one thing I love to do, and I'm just playing around, one thing I love to do is like people are like, oh, Americans suck at soccer. And it's true. Like we're terrible at soccer, right? Um, for now and probably for my kids' time. Um, but, you know, like one thing I like to do is I like to take the 2012 Olympic medal count because we have like the most medals, the most gold medals of any country, right? And of course we have a bigger size population, a lot of money that we put towards that kind of effort. And so it's, I'm just horsing around, but there's something to be said for the Americans kind of take for granted, like international celebrity, international success, the ability to have them and their cel- and their things that do well celebrated on an international scale. And so, um, and so I think partly it's that Ireland is seeking to have some kind of validation there. Rightly so. I, I don't begrudge them that at all. Um, and the other part is like, you know, when you, when you mix that hunger with trying to promote the nation itself and you're doing these weird things where you're, you're, you're weighing in on this, um, who, who you are nationally is a profound thing. That's why there's such an appeal there. Oh, that guy's Polish and he's a boxer. I want to see him cause I'm also Polish and I want to see this guy do well. I'm making an example in Adamic's case. I am not Polish, but you get the idea. That's a profound, that can be a very profound thing. I mean, some people don't buy into nationality that way but many many do it's why the world cup is the world's biggest sporting event right um or maybe the olympics is but world cup is pretty damn close whatever nationalism is key to or where you are from man it defines the language you speak there is research to indicate that the language you speak indicates how your brain works um that the way in which your mother tongue forms thoughts in your head can can change the way you, you look at the world um, your upbringing in that part of the world informs your judgment about it. Like the way people are like, well, I was born on this part of the, the planet versus that part. Who cares? Man, I think it's a totally simplistic way to look at the world. Where you are from in this planet and how you were raised and the circumstances by which those happen profoundly affect who you are. 
they deeply affect not always not in all times but it, it there's a tremendous tremendous impact tremendous right um and so when there's been painful parts of a national history and ireland is you know no stranger to that and you're trying to celebrate a larger identity you got to be very very careful about how you do that and just rushing to market national identity i think is a mistake not marketing national identity as an idea or occasional attempt but the fight kits to me like one thing we focused on them is how garish they are how little they matter to the individual fighter you know it's just really about this blaring ufc logo but like the fact that they tie it to national identity i mean in some ways i like it in many ways i don't like why are we making every fighter who walks out there carry their flag when maybe they don't want to or maybe they do to me it has much more profound impact when you don't ask someone of something and they make it a forward part of their identity and sure some promoter assistance is always going to be inevitable right if you go to mexico um as a promoter in the ufc you're going to do a couple things there um you're going to present your product in a way that makes it more palatable to mexicans this is not controversial Okay. But, but ultimately, you know, it's, it's less is more. I'm an American, you know, I don't like the idea of bringing America into athletics unless it's the world cup or it's the Olympics or something where you're actually representing the nation, um, in an international level as a clear and defined representative. So, for example, like you see these shoes that Chris Weidman had. Look, man, I hope Chris Weidman gets paid off those shoes because you got the stars and stripes on one side, or you got the stripes on one side and the stars on the other. If you're not from America, the stars represent the 50 states and the 13 bars uh, represent the original 13 colonies. Or yeah, yeah, the stars, the 50 stars represent the states and the 13 bars are the original uh, colonies of America uh, when they were settled. Um, I find them to be to be awful, to be totally garish. First of all, folks may not even realize this. Not every country is like this, but in America, there's a thing called the flag code. I learned this in the military. You're never supposed to wear the flag as any part of decorative element, as any part of a costume. Uniformed law enforcement and military can wear it to signify um, nation of origin, but you know, wearing it as part of like tennis shoes, as part of civilian general clothing is totally, totally, totally against flag etiquette. And you could say, well, who cares about flag etiquette? It's not a rule. Really? Go bang your wife's neighbor. It's not against the law either. See how much that does for your etiquette. Right? I mean, it's a totally ridiculous argument when you say etiquette has no place in society. It has a debatable place in society. It has a fluid place in society, but it has a place. Like these social mores kind of matter. Um, and to me, they look like something that a Trump supporter would wear at like an, you know, an angry rally um, they look like orthopedic shoes a Trump supporter would wear. Like I got nothing nice to say about them. I, do, I just don't. I don't. I don't like that infusion of them. And some Americans might. I don't speak for America in that regard. But all I'm saying is, you see how many qualifiers I have to make in this conversation just about a flag, just about shoes, just about this sport. This should tell you that this is difficult territory to trend in. I don't want to. I don't want to really root for a fighter because he's American. And if he fights in the UFC, if it was the Olympics, I'm going to cheer for every single member of the Olympic squad. 
But there are Americans who disagree with me. There are some who be like, I'll, I'll root for any American no matter what. But I just find it in every single case. A fighter walks out representing some geographic territory where they're from. To me, it matters much more when they elect to put it forward. Conor McGregor has elected to put it forward. It is a key part of his national identity. It is a key part of his general identity. It is a key part of who he is. And to me, that makes absolute clear and total sense. Him being a flag bearer and a leader from the front for Ireland, for, for Ireland athletics, for Irish MMA fans, this to me is so hand in glove and understandable. Boom, no issue. And again, maybe some people do, I'm sure, but that to me, it works. It works, yeah? Um, or to a lesser extent, he wasn't quite as forward with it, but still was a key part of who he was. You know, George St. Pierre, and he was French-Canadian, but still, you know, being a Canadian hero, right? Like, these things make sense because he, 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 in some ways, it was forced on him, but in some ways, he adopted that role, and, and the two worked together. But I just find this push into nationalism very, very difficult, man. If someone is from the Basque region of Spain, are they going to have to wear a Spanish kit kit fighter kit why or, or maybe they'll wear a basque one but i you know and you could say well basque isn't an actual country yet well give it time looks like it's headed that way you know they should be able to talk about being from the basque region if they want to they should be that that should be up to them and they shouldn't be impeded from doing so and if they really become a national figure of significance like conor mcgregor then make it work and if chris Weidman wants to be a flag bearer for the United States because he believes we should celebrate it in all ways, then that's his choice and he should be allowed to do that. And I don't, I don't begrudge him that, you know, but like, how can you, how can you, if you're Reebok, how can you not know this is totally against us flag etiquette to do this? And it's not just Reebok. It's every like apparel brand out there. And these donks who call themselves the American outlaws, the the guys who are the fans of the U S and, and women's, uh, the men's and women's soccer team, they show up to every game saying, I believe that we will win, which is the lamest chant on earth. And they're doing nothing but mass scale flag desecration. It's an embarrassment. It's an embarrassment. If you want to promote the U.S. flag, then be, then obey U.S. flag etiquette. And maybe this, you know, I'm not a conservative guy. And maybe this makes me lean that way. It's just how I feel. You've got clear, clear etiquette written into stone about how this thing should be treated. This, this very special flag. And you're out there trying to make money off of it in a, in a cheap attempt at nationalism. No me gusta. I don't like it. I don't like it. Not a fan of it now. Not a fan of it tomorrow. Not a fan of it ever. Never going to happen for me. Nationalism means a lot of different things to a lot of different people. And unless someone can take that torch and clearly differentiate themselves from the pack, I don't think it should be so forward. And when they do differentiate themselves from the pack, then maybe you ride that horse as far as it will go. But just making it a blanket thing all the time. I don't know, man. It's got drawbacks. And and I, I posted the article about, about what happened in Ireland. Um, for folks who may not know, it's a very complicated history that falls along religious lines, that falls along national lines in terms of uh, all, all, all different kinds of things dating back to the, the, the 15th century, the 16th century. But, but long story short, Ireland refers to the entire island. The Republic of Ireland is the part that you may call South Ireland, you know, the, the real Ireland. Uh, I don't even want to say that. But, you know, Ireland, as you understand it, the country whose capital is in Dublin. Northern Ireland is one of the four countries that makes up the UK. Um, but there, the, 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 look, it's a complicated, painful history that made Northern Ireland separate from Ireland. There are reasons for it. Um, 
and whatnot. But like, if you're gonna weigh in on stuff like that, you gotta be very, 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 very careful. Very careful. These things have to be vetted. You gotta have Irish people look over it in focus groups ahead of time. You just can't throw stuff out there. These things have got to take time before they come to market. Um, you know, and I don't know if it, even if it had had the full island of Ireland on there, if it would have sold any any all that well. It's not particularly creative as a shirt generally, but I'm not against nationalism. But I'm I'm against forced nationalism. I'm against garish nationalism. I like nationalism when it just feels right. Um, and for me, my appetite for that is not so strong, and people disagree, but that is precisely my point. It means so many different things to so many different people that unless you have real consensus around one figure, a.k.a., or I should say, e.g., uh, Ireland and Conor McGregor, it's best to not be so heavy-handed with it. And I'm, I was a U.S. Marine. I, sir, I, 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 was, I was in the military for six years. Maybe that's where my flag etiquette you know, paranoia comes from. So you're not going to tell me I'm not nationalistic enough, man. You don't, you don't get to you don't get to lecture me about that. It's just I got certain ideas about flag etiquette, and I like my nationalism packaged the right way for me, which is which is not in everyone's face, man. All right, let's see. Someone sent me something. All right. Someone says, is there something to be said about race in regards to the promotional force and popularity of Triple G in relation to Deontay Wilder? I have not thought about that. That is an interesting, interesting thing. Um, boy, I've met—I've never met Triple G. Uh, I've met and interviewed Wilder. He's the heavyweight champ. That's not named Klitschko, basically. Um, he is a force to be reckoned with. He is insanely marketable in my view. He is a joy to interview. A huge physical presence. He's taller than me. Um, I don't know. It's a good question. It's a really good question. I don't know. I'd have to think about that a little bit more. Someone asks a good question. I don't have an answer for it. I'm not going to tell you things I don't know the answer to. Uh, Station Casino's IPO, can this and or will it have an impact on the UFC or Zufa? I don't know. Could this have any impact on the class action suit against the UFC? I don't know, but I will look into it. I'm going to make a note of it here. I will look into it. Oh, and last thing on that T-shirt, I saw some people being like, well, I understand what the problem is. You know, they wrote Ireland, and they have the country of Ireland as most people understand it. You know, it's like, are you really going to sit here and lecture the Irish about how they feel about being Irish? Are you? Look, man, it is a complicated world we live in, and we have all had very, very complicated histories. The United States has had a complicated history. Certainly Ireland has, and the fault lines of Protestant versus Catholic and, and everything else. And, and you can go to virtually all kinds of territories across the world 
where this is the case. Uh, I have a buddy of mine who is Eritrean. You don't think they've had some issues with Ethiopians? Um, I, I referenced before China, or, uh, China and Taiwan, and um, and all kinds of uh, Colombia and Venezuela have had a series of maritime disputes. The the, the the world is very, very difficult. If you're going to embrace nationality, you need to make sure you are doing it with a deft hand. The only people who should be involved in the making of shirts about Irish fandom at Reebok are Irish. Yeah, or at least the Irish need to have significant input, input about how those shirts look and how they're made and what they say. Seems pretty fair to me. I wouldn't want um, South Sudanese assuming what they knew Americans wanted in their T-shirts and vice versa. That, that's how that should work. Uh, Routsy versus Holm. Why do Ronda's judo, judo credentials get so much love and praise when she didn't even win a gold medal, but Holly Holm's boxing credentials get called into question and she held many titles? Because Ronda's judo credentials um, were much harder to achieve. That's a that's a pretty simple one to answer. Judo, judo is a global. Like, understand something, right? So let's, let's talk. Okay, so we we got some Irish watching here, and the Irish like to make fun of us for being bad at soccer, which they have every right to, and everyone likes to make fun of us. But I keep trying to tell you all this: our best athletes don't play that game. Your best athletes play that game. Now, certainly a different kind of athlete plays rugby, and so a different kind of athlete plays in the NBA or the NFL. But, you know, you look at someone like Allen Iverson, right? He seems to me, you never know, I could be totally wrong, but seems to me like that's a guy who if we had a more robust soccer apparatus and he could have been directed to it, would have been fun. I mean, he had the build and the insane athleticism for it. Like our best athletes don't play that game. Our best athletes play all kinds of other things because it just makes more sense for us. Um, here, right? And I guess what I'm trying to say is judo is not that popular here, but judo has a massive, massive relative to women's boxing participatory rate globally. There are a lot of women who compete in judo if you're looking at the world generally. If you're looking at just popularity here, not so much. That's why soccer is not so great here. Like our best athletes don't play it. Now, you can get someone like Rousey, who is, a, who is a phenomenal athlete who can go and compete, and then she can beat people on the international stage. But, like, Americans don't do well at judo very often. Rousey got a medal. Uh, Kayla Harrison got a medal. I don't think even Jimmy Pedro medaled. Um, I think he did it at a world championship, but he never medaled at the Olympics. We're not that good at it. So, so for her to overcome those institutional advantages here and then on the grander world stage to beat – uh, women in a sport where they do have institutional advantages and there's so many of them, so many layers of competition that, that, that says it all. It is much harder to win a bronze medal in judo for women than it is probably to be, I, I don't know exactly, you know, look, I don't want to disrespect her becoming boxer of the year, 2005, 2006, but as a general rule, it is much harder to win a belt or excuse me, it is much harder to win a medal in women's judo than a belt in women's boxing. That's true, period. Uh, Olympic medal, that is. Someone said the Chris Weidman America shoes. I know I like Chris, man. I want him to get paid. All these guys, man, he seemed he seemed thrilled about it. He likes being America forward first on the pallet. God bless him. You know, I find the shoes 
uh, horrible. Again, like it looks like something an angry Trump supporter would wear to a rally with to, to you know with, with their orthotics in them. I, I can't get behind it at all. Just not not at all. Uh, Luke, what do you make of the fighter retirements? Yeah, so in one week you had Rick Hahn, Soa Palele, and Nick Newell. What was interesting to me though was that there wasn't so much a common thread between or among them, I should say. Newell bowing out because he just physically couldn't take it anymore. Hahn probably had some physical issues as well, but only because he's almost 40. So that's a little bit different. And Soa Palele, it's not exactly clear to me why he is bowing out exactly if it's some combination of the two or there's some kind of financial um, disincentive to continue. So, so I would be a little bit leery about making uh, drawing a common thread, uh, except to say the timing is certainly interesting. Let's see here. Let's see. Let's get some more of these questions from Twitter. Exhausted that. Uh, How do you see the Aldo McGregor fight going? I will save that for when that fight happens. Till versus Dolby. Yeah, I'm very, very excited for Till versus Dolby. That's going to be good. Someone didn't wreck this, but I'll put it up. Uh, Ryan Hall just saw saw that in the morning report that Ryan is currently training for a week at SBG Ireland. Is he still training at a TriStar or is he shopping around for a new home? I think he's occasionally at TriStar. I know he's been at 50-50 the past couple of weeks. He was training with one of his former students, Herman Salas, um, who I think is a brown belt Nogi Pan Am champion, I want to say. Maybe a purple belt. In, in any case, um, um, so I know he's been home for a few weeks. I actually spoke to him a couple of weeks ago myself. Um, just sort of checking in on things. I think he's with there because he has trained with uh, Gunny Nelson in Iceland at his gym. It starts with an M. I forget the name of it. Um, and so I guess maybe he's trying to help out at SPG or get a look at things. I don't think that would be anything permanent. He's got a school to run back here, but we'll see. Could be interesting. All right, given that Halloween, given that it is Halloween, Halloween not till next week. And then everyone always asks you questions about MMA. This is one that's out of the box. Number one, if there's a zombie apocalypse and you're a part of a group of MMA fighter survivors, one, which fighters would you like to have be part of? I'm not answering these questions. <laughs> All right. Fighters competing with significant physical differences. About Nick Newell. Okay, so he's asking about like this this common refrain about whether or not Nick Newell has an advantage or disadvantage. And again, you saw this brought up with Anthony Robles out of Arizona State his senior year when he won the title at 125 pounds. I think that's right. Um, it is a clear disadvantage. Disadvantage. No, I mean, there is just no two ways about it. Now, and I talked about this in the Monday Morning Analyst, at least the first one that I did before it got ruined by my bad tech issues. Um there are going to be individual circumstances where Nick Newell does have an advantage. So let me give you an example from his last fight with Tom Marcelino. 
he has Nick Newell full use of his right hand, and then the left hand is the one, or left arm, I should say, is the one that has the congenital amputation. On the, on the right arm, if he has an underhook, first of all, keep in mind, he can only underhook with one arm. He can never get double underhooks. So you already lost a bunch of positions. Moreover, if you've got double underhooks, you can sometimes pull them in, and that makes it harder to pummel in for your opponent. So, like, it's not just that he loses the position, but he loses a lot of the different dynamics and opportunities that come with that position. Huge disadvantage. One little detail that he's added is that when people try to pummel in on him, their left arm against his right, he takes his left arm and that the the end of his the the left hand there that he has, the short one, and he pops people with it at close range before they ever have a chance to react. That is a slight advantage that he enjoys in that particular circumstance. Certainly on that one side, it's going to be hard for him to get armbarred or omoplotted. Uh, not impossible, I suppose, but it's not going to be very easy. Maybe with the gi, it'd be a little bit easier, but not 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 no gi. Um, not impossible, but but difficult, right? Okay, so he enjoys a bit of an advantage there. But there's all kinds of forms of control that he lacks, huge, huge portions of being able to reap an arm and hold it that he does not enjoy. Moreover, and to me this was really sort of striking, was in the striking. When you see Newell stand and he's got his shorter left arm up here and his right hand here and he's this way, when he throws, he is so wide open for counters. He hasn't fought a lot of guys who have made him pay for it, but, you know, can you imagine – Something like, you know, if he had fought Frankie Edgar in his in his head day. I mean, a guy who can cut angles and then counter strike would chew him to pieces. You know, I like Nick Newell a lot, man. It's not his fault. Like, this is a disadvantage he's dealing with. And moreover, because he has such a strong arm on one side, like an Yvonne Lendl kind of thing going on, when he throws, his 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 whole body looks kind of off balance all the time on that when, whenever he extends. So when he extends, it's hard for him to retract. He has no defense hardly at all on this side, just enough to get up to cover for a kick. But even then, it's like you need to get two hands on that. Like, there's so many disadvantages. How do you train for a guy like that? Like you train for anyone else. Maybe, you know, focusing on not doing arm bars to one side and maybe chokes to one side, depending how you want to do it. But there's lots of ways to beat that guy. And there's actually more ways to beat that guy because he has a lot more to worry about on one side. He has a couple of unique advantages here or there, but the net disadvantage that he has is tremendous. The inability to even do this, to do this is it kills a lot. It kills a lot. It is it is very very difficult for him. So to have as much success as he did is a testament frankly to what a beast he is. Someone says your walkout music. Quick question, Luke. If you were coming out to the Octagon for a big title fight, what's your walkout song? Um, this will change depending on my mood. This will change depending on the week. Right now, like what I'm listening to a lot, it would be uh, Fuego by Bomba Estéreo. Let's see. Uh, good question. I rewatched Joanna versus Jessica Penny, and damn, she is good. She can fight and is well-spoken. I am more excited to see her fight than Paige Van Zant. What heights do you see her reaching, and do you think the UFC is putting more eggs in uh, Van Zant's basket while missing out on the greatness of Joanna? They're gonna, they're going to, they're gonna try and blow more wind behind the sail that naturally just works better. And guys, what do you want a promoter to do? Not promote someone who's easy to promote. You think they just invented Paige Van Zandt? No, you 
created Paige Van Zandt. They're just responding to it. You did it. All they're doing is saying, okay, you have told us you like her. We are going to get behind that. That's it, man. They didn't make it up out of nothing. They they have a ton of information to say, our audience likes her. We are going to get behind that. It just so turns out she can fight. And if she can beat Joanne Calderwood, she can fight really well. So we shall see. But I like, there's this misconception that UFC has like invented out of whole cloth all these people that they want to promote. And yes, it's been uneven. And yes, they play favorites because you have to. Because you have favorites. And if it's not you, you, then it's the guy next to you or the lady next to you. They like her. People like say, uh, Sage Northcutt. Go look at our YouTube views. People like him. They want more of him. And you had to put him together about Sage and Page. Okay, that's a gimmicky. But generally speaking, they're going to give you more of who you ask for. And so if you're a hardcore fan and you like Joanna Champion or Joanna and Jacek, I'm two thumbs up. I got no issue with that. Just recognize that maybe a lot of other people don't. All right. And with that, I have to go. Let me say, number one, if there's been any uh, tech issues on your end, let me know. Luke.Thomas at SBNation.com. Thank you for watching. Uh, UFC Dublin will have plenty of coverage. UFC, excuse me, Bellator 144, which there were no questions about. We'll still have coverage of that as well. Um, I got another article uh, coming out this weekend I think you might like. And uh, lots of good stuff coming your way. So until next time, thank you so much. Subscribe to us on iTunes or SoundCloud. That will work. Follow me on Twitter. And then, uh, yeah, thanks for watching, guys. Stay frosty.